0: We're turning back in the Word of God today into the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter. Luke chapter 1. And we'll read again just 30-31, because we'll be reading parts of the passage through the message. 30-31, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb. And bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. And with the Word of God open before us, we'll bow together in a word of prayer, entitling the message. It's a yes from me. Luke one twenty six through to thirty eight. Heavenly Father, again, we look to Thee, we pray for Thy good hand upon us. We ask that I will open up the Word to our understanding, and the particular aspect of this passage that we are looking at today, we ask that I will take up that thought, and spur us on, encourage us. May the Word of God be of real motivational value, inspirational value as we come to consider it today. We thank Thee for the opportunities all around us. We thank Thee for the field that is white already to harvest, even in winter time. We thank Thee, Lord, that we can take the seed of the Word all year round, and we can keep sowing, and we pray that by Thy Spirit that it shall be watered, and that Thy alone Uh, The only one capable of doing it will give the increase. And so we ask that that will happen even today. So we pray for the suffering, pray for the sorrowing. We have many people who are suffering today. Thou does know all of them by name and need, and pray that I will come very close to them. May they be conscious the people of God are praying for them. We pray for those in the valley of bereavement. We think of Reverend David Michael Veen on the passing of his brother, Uh, we think of uh, those that today in the Temple Baptist are thinking about uh, the loss that they have sustained with the passing and promotion of our brother Sexton. Pray that thy hand will be upon them and all such who are mourning the loss of their loved ones today. That lady in Lisburn, whose son was here not long ago, pray for our brother Stephen Chapman on the passing of his mother, that I will be tender, uh, tenderly disposed towards that family in their need as well. Come and answer prayer. Do us good this day. We ask it in the Savior's blessed and holy name. Amen. The title of the message this morning, it's a yes from me, may well conjure up an instant image in your mind of a famous television personality, Simon Cowell. He's been a bit of a fixture in our living rooms right through this 21st century, and we know him to be the star maker, the record company mogul, who is famous the world over for using this sentence about those who come and perform on the X Factor or the Got Talent shows, and who he is signaling, you've made it through to the next round of auditions. It's a yes from me. This was also the name that he chose to give to a race horse. However, though he has well conquered the music world, his foray into racing ended in disaster because the horse that was bought for £35,000 that he co owned with Anton Deck didn't prove to be a winner at all. Now, things looked promising at the beginning. It's a yes from me. That horse, that runner, was trained with the respected James Fanshawe. It set off in the first race, June 2014, but it came last of five by 13 and a half lengths. And that was about as good as it got for that particular gelding. They followed that with a month's rest, set it off again in a six furlong sprint at Doncaster, came in fifth again. Same at Redcar the next month, and further finishes off sixth and tenth. It's dropping back even further, and Cowell and Antidek took the advice that was given to them, leave it off. This horse isn't a runner. It's rendered the winnings as total penniless in all of these races, and it never was sent out to race again deck said of, it's a yes from me, it was awful. It was a dreadfully slow horse. It wasn't a race horse. It was just a horse, because it didn't race. This morning, we're going to take a few sidelights from the story of Miri. And in a certain sense, we can summarize her story with this slogan, it's a yes from me. Her actions here, despite some very complicated and difficult circumstances, they underline the truth that as the children of God, we must comply with what God commands us to do. Many people are convinced Mary was barely a teenager. She was engaged to be married to Joseph. That was possibly an arranged marriage. She lived in the town of Nazareth, that city resided almost midway between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Most scholars believe that this town of Nazareth had a population between 400 and 600 people. Now, to put that in perspective and allow us to more fully imagine what that is like… I thought of towns and villages around about here and maybe a little further afield, but Ballygowan, for example, 3,138 people, so that's over six times the size that Nazareth was. Or make it smaller, Money Ray, 1,600 people, over three times the size potentially that Nazareth was. Bally Robert in the census in 2011 came in at 659 people. So, you're pushing up towards and beyond the higher limit of that figure there. And then I thought, well, can I get a place that is even closer? To the population of Nazareth, and we went down to the lower limit, and that was Stonyford of 376 people. So, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Mary here, and he came at this location to Mary, found her here, the first thought might have been not only from Mary but from others as well, is it possible that you have got the address wrong here? Because nothing like this happens to people who live in Nazareth. We're not told the precise circumstances at the time of the angel Gabriel's visit. Was Mary busy working in the home? Was it in the evening time? Was she awakened out of her sleep? Was it like Joseph by means of a dream? We're not told here. All we know is what is set on record about the visit in Luke 1 verse 26 through 38, and it's always wise to stay within the parameters of Scripture. And in the sixth month, verse 26, the angel Gabriel was sent from God onto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin of to a man whose name was Joseph, off the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at a saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob for ever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be? Saying, I know not a man. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. And so, we have first of all here the requirement for doing the will of God, the requirement for doing the will of God. You'll notice the account here begins in Luke 1, the verse 26, with these words, in the sixth month. And that's a continuation on from the story already told about Zacharias and Elizabeth here, who were relatives of Mary, soon to be the parents of John the Baptist. And Elizabeth was well past childbearing age at this particular time. Zacharias and Elizabeth had made peace in their hearts and minds with the reality of that subject. We will not have children. But an angel appeared to Zacharias while he was in temple duty and told him there, the long wait for a child in your family and home, it is over. This was an incredible surprise. And so, six months down the line, into Elizabeth's pregnancy, the same angel Gabriel came and went to visit Mary. What the angel says is significant. The words are very familiar in Luke 1 and verse 28, heal Thou that art highly favoured, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And some from a Roman Catholic background would instantly recognise that. That's part of the Rosary, better known as the Hail Mary. And it's important to note that Roman Catholics and Protestants differ drastically on the role that Mary should play in the church and in redemption and salvation itself, Protestants say that the Roman Catholic Church has elevated Mary to a dangerous place. Are we correct? Are we being fair? Are we balanced? Are we simply bashing the Catholic Church on this and accusing them of holding to dogmas that really, when all is peeled away from the surface, they don't actually believe or teach. There are four doctrines or dogmas. The Roman Catholic Church affirms about Mary that we do not embrace, because we see absolutely no biblical basis for these teachings. And the first is, The doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. It was only declared in 553 A.D. The doctrine teaches that Mary was a virgin, remained a virgin right throughout her life. In other words, Joseph and Mary never consummated their marriage. Well, if that is the case, how come we have the brothers of Jesus mentioned in several Bible verses? For example, in Matthew 12, 46, Luke 8, 19, Mark three thirty one, and we're told there in those verses that Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. The Bible is even more specific than what I've mentioned, because it tells us he had four brothers and names them, James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, Matthew 13 to verse 55. The Bible also tells us that our Lord had sisters. They're not named or numbered, but a reference to them we find in Matthew 13 and 56. So much for the perpetual virginity of Mary. In John chapter 7, the verse 110, his brothers go to a feast while Jesus stays behind. In Acts 1 and 14, his brothers and mother are described as praying along with the disciples. In Galatians 1, the verse 19, the mention is made of the fact that James was our Lord's brother what do we conclude from those passages? Well, the most natural conclusion from these pieces of Scripture is to interpret this, Jesus had actual blood half-siblings. Now, some Roman Catholics claim that these brothers were actually Jesus' cousins. But in each instance, were there mentioned the specific Greek word for brothers? is used. And yes, I admit that word can refer to other relatives, but its normal, its literal meaning is that of a physical brother. There was a Greek word for cousin, and that is not used here in any of these examples. And further, if they were Jesus' cousins, why are they so often described here as being along with Mary, Jesus' mother? There is nothing in the context of his brother and his mother's coming to see him that even hints that they were anything other than his literal, blood-related half-brothers. But of course, the Roman Catholic Church isn't ended at that point. They come with another argument. Jesus' brothers and sisters were actually the children of Joseph from a previous marriage this entire theory of Joseph's being, oh, he was significantly older than Mary, he had been previously married, he had multiple children within that marriage, and then he's widowed before marrying Mary, all of that is invented without any biblical basis. The problem with that is the Bible doesn't even hint that Joseph was married or had children before he married Mary. If if Joseph had at least six children before he married Mary, why are they not mentioned? In Joseph and Mary's trip to Bethlehem, In Luke 2, the verse 4 to 7, why do they not appear on the trip to Egypt in Matthew 2, 13 to 15, or on the way back to Nazareth in Matthew 2, verse 20 to 23? There is no biblical reason to believe that these siblings are anything other than the actual children of Joseph and Mary. And those who oppose the idea that Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters, they're doing that not from a reading of Scripture, but from a preconceived concept of trying to buttress up an old, field, hollow, untrue Roman doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary that is totally unbiblical. Then we have another thought coming in here, and they made it a doctrine, oh, uh, the immaculate conception. Now, I get the impression that most Protestants imagine this doctrine refers to the birth of Jesus, that when Rome talks about this, they're talking about Him being immaculately conceived. That is not what it's speaking about. In 1854… Pope Pius IX declared that Mary was born sinless. She was immaculately conceived so that the stain of her sin didn't get transferred on to Jesus. And so this immaculate conception is about Mary's conception, not Jesus. And that sets up the teaching, Mary was sinless, and therefore capable of becoming the mother of God as they teach. We have another doctrine that came out of the Roman Catholicism, and that is the Assumption of Mary. didn't appear until 1950, so it's very new. Pope Pius XII declared that Mary did not die, but was taken up into heaven in bodily form, like Enoch, like Elijah. Where is any biblical pointer to that? Nowhere in Scripture, like all the rest of this. And then they refer to Mary as the Queen of Heaven. And again, in 1954, Pope Pius XII declared Mary to be the Queen of Heaven. Take a quote from the New Catholic Answer book, If Solomon honored Bathsheba so highly as his queen mother, how much more must Jesus honor? honor Mary as his own. How much more exalted must be the woman, however lowly her her original state, who bore the Son of God, sovereign of the universe, no doubt. Her throne too is at the right hand of her Son's throne in heaven, and no doubt, just as Solomon was eager to grant his mother's request, so Jesus gladly responds to her intercession for his subjects. Supposition, supposition, speculation, superstition, but no truth. That's what that is all about. And this is the reason why Roman Catholics in the Hail Mary ask Mary to intercede for them. They are keeping, notice it all the way through here, the focus on who? Mary, 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 Mary. It's all about her Keep your eyes on her, she's the driving force, but our focus must always be where Mary's focus was, on Christ, her spirit exalting, magnifying God for Christ, her Savior. And we point out the passage in 1 Timothy 2 and 5 that so categorically says, for there is." One God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So Mary is told here by the angel she will conceive and give birth to a son. And she comes with a very logical question How can that happen? I'm a virgin. As Reverend Bruce Gotchy insisted, Mary was not doubting in this instance. She was clarifying, and that was understandable because we all know there are certain natural laws, scientific laws that govern the world. One of those laws is that you need a man and a woman to produce a child. We think of those natural laws as the things that always happen, and when the angel says to Mary here, you're going to conceive and bear a son without Joseph or any other man. Well, yes, natural laws are the way that God usually governs his creation. However, the laws of nature, they themselves, are completely under God's control and he can transcend them any time that he chooses to do so. And of course, he's done that. In the Word of God, we have many examples. He can part the waters of the Red Sea and allow the children of Israel to escape the Egyptian army and travel to safety. He can, as he did, provide manna and quail in the wilderness for 40 years to 2 million at least people there. He can cause in Joshua's day the sun to stand still. He can make a shadow, Hezekiah's time, go backwards. He can shut the mouths of lions to deliver Daniel. He can feed 5,000 people with few loaves and some fish. And those similar acts and miracles, well, at the end of the Gospel of John, we're told we've run out of space. Because if all of them were written, then the world couldn't contain the books that should be written, all the miracles that he did then and is still doing today. And he can, as he did, enable a woman long past the limits of fertility to have a baby. He dealt with Elizabeth, and he can impregnate Mary without a man. The angel knew this would be hard for Mary to comprehend, and that's why he immediately points down the road to your cousin Elizabeth. She's long past the age where this should be possible, but now she is pregnant, and God is patient with Mary here, gives a reason to believe him, and Mary doesn't disappoint. She says, and this is the key thing, I am willing to serve in whatever way the Lord will choose. She said, yes. It's a yes from me. Don't miss the scale of the risk here that Mary is taking. She could be divorced by Joseph, exposing her family to embarrassment. She could potentially be executed as one unfaithful to her betrothed. She could forfeit any opportunity for future marriage to anybody. She would be the talk of the town, not in a good sense. All of these things would have economic and social and spiritual consequences for her and for her family, and yet Mary said, Yes, I will serve thee, in whatever way I can. My Father is omnipotent, and that you can't deny. A God of might and miracles, it's written in the sky, it took a miracle to put the stars in place, it took a miracle to hang this world in space. But when He saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace, Though here His glory has been shown, we still can't fully see the wonders of His might, His throne, till eternity. And the miracle of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is one that demands our attention and should amaze us. Robert Hawker, speaking in the passage, he said, pause over the wonderful subject. Call to mind the vast preparations made for this one purpose, the union of God and man in one person through the long succession of generations, from the fall of man to the coming of Christ, and from the first promise in the Bible concerning the seed of the woman, until we behold it fulfilled in the uncreated Word, being made flesh and dwelling among us, we trees, he says, the whole scope of Scripture pointing and directing, like so many rays of light, converging to this one center." He went on to say, had the human nature of Christ been formed out of nothing, or from the dust of the earth as Adam was, where would have been his relationship to his people? That's an interesting question. Or had the human nature of Christ been taken from any part of man, as Eve was, from the rib of Adam, this would have been a relationship, no doubt, but nothing more mysterious than the former instance when it happened with Eve. But to form the human nature of Christ from the seed of the woman, by conception, without man, and wholly by the power of God. This was a sign, indeed, from God. This was a new thing in the earth and a mystery, surpassing all human foresight and contrivance. Well might the apostle in the contemplation exclaim, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, First Timothy 3 and 16. Mary's in the epicenter of the miracle how did she react? Well, look at what she did. We have the requirement for doing the will of God, and then more briefly, the next two points, the response to doing the will of God, the response to doing the will of God. What did she do? Well, the first thing she did was she clarified. Mary doesn't just spin off and say, oh yeah, sounds like a plan. Let's be going with it. She made sure she understood what the Lord was asking of her. She ensured that she's hearing the angels very correctly. Sadly, I've met people who were convinced God was telling them to do something, and then they've gone spiraling away, and they've done something without making sure they understood clearly what God wanted them to do. Now, we can do that with the promises of God. We can take a verse in the Bible, we can interpret that verse as God giving to us specific promises or instructions. There are people, and we know in the world today, who engage in horrible acts of violence, and they say, God told us to do that particular thing, which is a nonsense. It's much too easy to take a Bible verse and rip it out of its context, and apply it in a way that we would like the promise to be applied. In effect, what we're doing is we are twisting the Bible to make it say what we want it to say, not what it actually does. Always examine the wider context where you find a verse. If it's a promise, who's the promise made to? Is it to every believer? Is it to the nation of Israel? Is it to the church at large? Is it a promise to a particular Bible character? Imagine you read or heard me saying that I'm busy buying Christmas gifts, and suppose you took the statement and you concluded that I was out buying Christmas gifts for you. You say, well, I'm only claiming the truth that you declared, and you tell everybody around that Mr. Brown's shopping for me, going to buy me something. Well, here's what's going to happen. You're going to wake up on Christmas morning, and you're going to be very disappointed. It would have been better to ask, for whom is he buying those Christmas gifts? What are the limits to the statement? What's the context? Get that. And when Zacharias was told his wife was going to have a baby, he appears just to have tripped up and doubted God. And so, he's unable to speak until John was named in the temple following his birth. Mary is not doubting. Look at verse 45, blessed is she that believed. She's clarifying. She wants to make sure that she understands what God is calling her to do. Now, that's wisdom. and We must show that kind of diligence when we feel God is calling us to a task or to a ministry. God will never call us to do something that will violate any other clear command of Scripture. If it seems there's a jarring here, there's a contradiction, then press pause, go back, check it out. She clarified. But notice also, she magnified. She magnified. And the Great declaration that we know now as the Magnificat. We find it in the chapter here in Luke 1, beginning at verse 46, running right through to 55, beginning in Mary, said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And then to 54-55, He hath hope in His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy, as He spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Mary could have sat around and fretted here. She could have spent all her time afraid of what was going to happen and what people were going to say. Instead, she focused on the goodness of God. Not just in choosing her, but also, and she's tracing it here in those final verses, 54, 55, his good hand moving right through history, organizing, orchestrating, developing everything. This song of Mary, as one has said, is full of the breathings of a soul under the influence of the Holy Ghost. What she focused on, she's focused on how big my God is. And she sets her mind on what it's possible for God to do rather than what she thought was impossible. And she's out here, we could call it on, an adventure of faith. She's celebrating God's goodness. She shows ample evidence here of her own understanding of all that those prophets had taught about the Messiah King. And that's why she knew that the child in my womb in the one and the same moment, is my son and my savior. Verse forty-seven. So here's a woman, able to say yes to God because she focused on His goodness, and His character, rather than on her own weakness. She focused on God's grace rather than on the potential rumble and stir that would arise from the people around her. She was able to say yes in the middle of all of this whirlpool of uncertainty because she refused to take her eyes off the Lord. It was His plan, not hers. And so she trusted Him. If He's the one asking, then there's no question, I will trust Him. And she kept her eye on the truth articulated back in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." And so, we have here the requirement for doing the will of God, the response to doing the will of God, and finally, the ramifications from doing the will of God, the ramifications from doing the will of God, and that's where we become personal. That's where we apply it. All that happened here to ourselves. And that's where we ask the question, where is God asking you and I to say yes? If He's calling you to some adventure of faith and asks you to say yes, as He did Mary, would you do that? I'm convinced there are areas where God is calling on all of us to say yes. What he wants to hear as he did from Mary, it's a yes from me. One area is that of conversion, where we assent to Christ and acknowledge Him as Savior and as Lord. We apply and appeal to Him. He wants us to admit we're addicted to our sin. Apart from God's grievous and mighty Spirit, we would never choose Him. Yes, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ died in my place for my sin. Repenting of it, believing in Him, it's the only way that I can be forgiven. Conversion, consecration. He calls us to live holy lives. 1 Thessalonians 4, the verse 1 through to 6, and he spells out there the mandate for holy living. Of course, the devil's not very subtle strategy is to do as much as he can to encourage intimacy outside of marriage and discourage intimacy within marriage. And many people say, well, I don't know what God's will is for my life. Well, the Bible dispels that confusion. It tells us here, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. God wants us to be set apart, to be different from the rest of the world. He's asking, say yes to that. Conversion, consecration, Another area is the area of commission. He has given a command. We have it in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. We have it again in Mark 16 and the verse 15, and He wants us to go into all the world without discrimination and preach the gospel to every creature doesn't want us to be tight-lipped about our faith, hiding our light under a bushel, wants us to love others in the way that He loves them, wants us to see they are people of value with immortal souls, wants us to understand that people who do not come to faith in Jesus Christ along the road of repentance cannot be saved, will never be in heaven for these people. This really is a matter of life and death, and He wants us to plunge in and rescue them as we would if we could, if someone was drowning, as we would if we could, if someone was burning. They're in deep trouble. And the fact of the matter is, they don't even know it. They desperately need somebody to tell them, you were lost apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Throw out the lifeline. Across the dark wave, there is a brother— whom someone should see, of somebody's brother. Oh, who then will dare to throw out the lifeline his peril to share? And then we're thinking about circumstances here, because you can't say, I'm limited in what I can do. Be creative, be intentional in your witness, do all you can in terms of circumstances, maybe God is putting His hand on your shoulder and He's wanting you to say yes in some special situation. You may be called upon to endure illness for a time. You may have a child that needs extra care conferred upon. It. Say yes and love that child with the love of Christ you may have a gift or a talent that somebody else could benefit from, say yes. Seek to honor the Lord in the use of that gift. Mary, right here, didn't have the answer to every question. There was much up in the air. She did not feel qualified. But if you asked Mary if she would do what she did again… Knowing the heartache now that she would know, I'm sure she would say, I will do anything the Lord asks. Because He's on her side, now and forever. And didn't she leave this instruction to those servants at the wedding in Cana of Galilee that we have recorded her voice in John 2 and verse 5? It became her guiding light. It was to be their guiding light whatsoever. He saith unto you, Do it! And may that be our guiding light, not only through this Christmas time, but the new year if we're spared to walk into it and go through it, and right to the end of our lives, whatsoever He saith unto you, Do it! It's a yes from Mary. But is it a yes from me?